0: Okay, so we're reading, uh, starting with Daniel chapter 7, and we're reading verses 1 to 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So we're moving over now to Revelation. So Revelation chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast, and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God, and to slander his name and his dwelling place, and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666.
1: Thank you, Sue. Well, uh, Year 6 to 8 are going to head out for Bible study now with Dan and Beck. And uh, please keep Revelation 13 open in front of you. I'm going to lead us in prayer as we come to consider this part of God's Word. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we, we ask that you would give us wisdom and insight. We ask that you'd clear our minds of distraction and speak to us from your Word. And we ask this, that we may love you and trust you more, and that we may patiently endure and be faithful. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we have here beasts, a dragon, multiple heads and horns, fatal wounds, fire from heaven, talking images, the mark of the beast, 666. It's, it's fantastic stuff in the true sense of the, of the word, perhaps. And you might think, well, it's, this is kind of the stuff that nightmares are made of. And uh, in which case you might ask, well, why has God given us this chapter in our Bibles? Is there a, a shortage of gruesome, terrifying, nightmare material in our world? No, there isn't. And perhaps that's actually the point, that there is so much gruesome, terrifying stuff in our world that God has given us Revelation 13 to help us understand it, to not be thrown off course but rather to persevere, to follow Christ and live rightly. One of the, uh, the, the horrible realities of life in this world is that uh, Christians are persecuted. Oh, sorry, there was a picture there for you, just to uh, kind of, in case you hadn't kind of got it going in your minds. Uh, Christians are persecuted. And uh, we often pray for, for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who suffer, who are, who are persecuted simply. Because they call in the name of Jesus. Uh, We sometimes hear in the media of the violence that they suffer. But actually, even more devastating can be the exclusion from family, uh, the rejection from their communities, the, the loss of work and income. Christians are often persecuted. Well, what about us? Are we free from persecution? Well, we certainly don't face the same uh, degree of hostility and we should thank God for that as we have this morning. We should thank God for the freedom and the peace that we are blessed with. But we do face opposition. We face opposition from the world around us. Perhaps we face opposition from family, from friends. Uh, We certainly face it from our our wider culture, the media, even our government. And I think that's increasing. We may find ourselves, if we're not already, we may find ourselves very much marginalised and silenced, even perhaps persecuted. The world in 10 years from now, that's not a very long time, the world in 10 years from now could be a very different and more challenging place to live as a follower of Christ. What should we do? How do we face and endure opposition? Are you up for that? Are you real about following Christ, even in the face of opposition? I hope so. I hope we are. And if we are, well, we actually need to understand what's going on around us. We actually need to understand, and that's where Revelation 13 comes in, with all its weird and wonderful imagery. It actually helps us to understand what is going on around us. So let's dig into uh, Revelation 13, and uh, as we do that, let's remember that uh, opening promise which John gave us at the beginning of this letter, that, uh, that it promises blessing to those who hear what is written and who take it to heart. So let's, uh, let's have a look at this. What do we make of these beasts? Well, something that's really important to remember as we come to Revelation 13, and we've heard this throughout our series in Revelation, is we need to remember the style of, of writing that this is. This is what's called apocalyptic. Now, that's not only something special to Revelation, it, it comes up in, a, in other parts of the Bible, uh, such as Daniel 7, which we've, we've also read this morning. Uh, and just like any form of writing, apocalyptic writing has its own conventions, its own patterns, its own forms and, and meanings. Uh, I think one way of of expressing it is to to say it's symbolic picture language. It's it's language that that paints a picture. As as Min said, not so much for us to see, but for us to to hear. And the images that that picture evokes communicates. So let's dig into this and let's unpack this. Uh, Verse 1, the dragon. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now we need a little bit of context Uh, from last week. We we saw that the the dragon represents, 12 verse 9, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So the dragon is Satan. He's been defeated, defeated by the blood of the lamb. Uh, The male child born of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus, has defeated Satan and he's been hurled down to the earth for a time. Uh, We read last week how he's filled with fury because his time is short and so he's seeking to take down whoever he can. 12 verse 17, he is waging war against those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So that's the context. Satan, represented by this dragon, Satan is defeated and yet enraged and waging war against God's people. Next in John's vision, we, uh, a beast enters the scene. Verse 1, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. Now that description there of the beast, it's similar to, but slightly different from the description of the dragon. Uh, back in 12 verse 3, the dragon has... Seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head, on its heads. Here, 13, one, It's similar. It, it also has well, it has ten horns and seven heads. The order's reversed, and ten crowns on its horns. So there's a slight difference. It's similar but different. The crowns are on the horns, perhaps highlighting power rather than than the head, which is symbolic of wisdom or knowledge. This beast is similar to the dragon, and it's similar in that it is against God. In fact, like the dragon, the dragon, it says, verse 2, gives his power and his throne and great authority to the beast. So we have to hear this, this beast that's in league with the dragon, with Satan. Well, the obvious question to ask is, well, who, who is this beast and who or what is it representing? Uh, now, the beginning of verse 2 describes it. It says, The beast uh, I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And we might picture something kind of like this, which we might think is pretty, pretty bizarre. It is pretty bizarre. But actually, it's not so much about getting that picture and going, oh, well, that's clearly such and such. If we know our Bibles and are familiar with the, the, the background of apocalyptic writing with the, the images and symbols that it, it, it often uses, such as in Daniel 7, then that description of this beast being like a leopard bear lion, it's actually a big and obvious clue for understanding what the beast represents. In Daniel's vision, which Sue read for us, we saw four great beasts. And you may say, well, how does that help us? I mean, do we use one weird passage to help us understand another weird passage? Well, yes, because actually Daniel 7 not only gives us the, what we find weird, description it also gives us an interpretation to tell us plainly what it represents so keep a finger in uh, or something in in um, revelation 13 and turn back with me to uh, daniel chapter 7 which uh, was page 890 daniel chapter 7 and we'll pick it up at verse 15 so i've read verses 1 to 8 with this vision that, that daniel sees of these four beasts And then in verse 15, he writes, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Not surprising. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled under the foot, whatever was left. And Skip down to verse 23. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms that will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But the, the, the interpretation here in Daniel 7 is given. The four beasts are four kings or four kingdoms, kingdoms who rule over the earth and who oppress God's people. And so in John's vision, in Revelation 13, these, these four beasts, they're kind of rolled into one. It says this beast is like a leopard with the feet of a bear and a mouth of a lion. And as we hear that, if we're familiar with, um, with Daniel 7, we go, oh, okay, this beast represents human rule, authority, kings, kingdoms, ruling over the earth, and they're ruling in league with Satan in opposition to God and his people. Now, for the original readers of Revelation in the first century, the Roman Empire would have fitted the bill with their opposition to Christians. But it's broader than that. This is any form of government or human authority in opposition to God and his people. But notice also the power of the beast. Uh, Horns are symbols of power. And this beast has ten horns. And on one of its horns it says it was what seemed to be a fatal wound but the wound was healed. Which is a contradiction. But what it's implying is that it keeps going even after defeat. It's powerful. And notice what it does. It it leads the whole world astray. Halfway through verse 3, the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? So it leads the world and it slanders God. And wages war in his people. Verse seven, it says, uh, "It was given uh, power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation." Everyone worships the beast. We see here, except Christians. Verse eight: All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those, uh, sorry, all whose names. Sorry, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now, maybe this sounds kind of um, a bit out there. Maybe we sort of think, oh, okay, so is there going to be some sort of future time where where Satan will kind of raise up some sort of human leader to oppose God's people? But no, this is this is happening now. This has been happening since... This was first written. That is, everyone in the world is actually following Satan unless their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Satan himself is described, as Ben said last week, as the prince of this world in John 12 and John 16, uh, as the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians 2, as the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. And 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Satan leads the world astray using his human agents represented here by the beast. And yet the beast is limited. Uh, Limited in that some don't worship it; those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And limited in that, at the end of verse five, he's allowed. It says he's allowed to exercise its authority for forty-two months, or three and a half years. Remember, seven is a picture of completion; three and a half is it's cut short. It's limited. The beast's authority and power and influence will come to an end. That's a crucial thing for us to hang on to. So how should the Christian respond? Well, verse 9 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they'll go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. How should we respond? Well, firstly, we should accept that that this is the case. This is how things are. The the dragon, Satan, and his beasts of human authority in opposition to God will wage war against God's people and they will conquer them, says verse 7. We might do what we can to limit the power of godless rulers, but actually until God brings that final day of judgment, we're not going to get rid of them. So our response is firstly acceptance. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity they'll go. But secondly, it, this calls for notice end of verse ten: patient endurance and faithfulness. And we can patiently endure. We can remain faithful to God because we know the bigger picture, because we have Revelation 12, 13, and what we'll look at next week, Revelation 14. We know Satan has been defeated by Jesus. We know that his time is short. We know that opposition comes because he's trying to take us down. We also know that it's only for a time, and he won't win in the end. We can persevere. We can be faithful. We can endure. This is why our brothers and sisters in North Korea can face imprisonment for following Jesus and can patiently endure and be faithful because they know that Jesus has won and that Satan's time is limited. And we, like them, need the bigger picture. We need to to view any opposition which we may face in the context of the victory that Jesus has won and the current opposition of Satan and his agents and the fact that his time is limited and will come to an end. We must patiently endure and be faithful. Well, what about this uh, second beast? Well, it's, uh, it's similar and different. It's similar in that it has horns and it speaks like a dragon. And verse 12 says it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So it works together, this second beast works together with the dragon and with the first beast. It's kind of this, what I've entitled the sermon this unholy trinity and it makes all the earth worship the first beast. That's similar but it's different in that it says it has horns like a lamb. Is there something with the outward appearance of of godliness, of religion? Does it have the and notice there it has the ability to, to perform signs, verse fourteen, to deceive the inhabitants of the earth with, with its appearance of religion. It looks like the real thing, but it's it's not. That is, what this second beast represents is, is godless human authority taking on a form of religion to take the place of God and to call on people to be, to be worshippers. In fact, to demand of people that they be worshippers of, of the state, to toe the line or be killed. And if you don't worship the beast and receive his mark, then verse 17 says you'll be excluded from buying or selling. You'll be excluded from functioning in society. And indeed, this is the case for many brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. Uh, if in many parts of the world, if someone rejects the religion of the state and follows Christ, they face exclusion from society, unable to, to gain employment, unable to engage in trade. What's the response from the Christian? Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Now, people get all caught up in trying to discover the significance of 666, and it's been connected with anything and everything from credit cards to, to barcodes on, on food and and, and all sorts of, of things that people go, oh, look, there's, there's the mark of the beast, 666. Um, interestingly, if you... Um, look up, I was going to put on the screen, but uh, car number plate 666, there's just, it seems a really popular thing to put 666 in your car number plate. Anyone here got 666 in their car number plate? People kind of connect this number and think, oh, that's the mark of the beast. But I think it actually misses the point of what this actually says. It says this calls for wisdom, insight, to, to calculate, to discern, to not be deceived. The number of the beast is the number of a man. It's, it's humanity's number. The beast of human rule, which yields its godlike power and authority to oppress Christians, its number is only the number of a man, of a human. It, it's, it's 666, this unholy trinity of dragon, beast, and second beast. And, and it might make boasts of being godlike, with its 666, trying to be 777, but it falls short. It's not the real thing. It doesn't have final, complete authority. So the call is to use your insight, to use discernment, wisdom, to see this unholy trinity for what it is. It's just 666. It's not the number of God. It's the number of man. Well, then how does this help us? How does Revelation 13 help us? Well, it it gives us that big picture. It gives us the the wisdom, the insight to see and understand what's going on in the world around us. And that helps us to endure patiently, to remain faithful. And as we can understand that that Satan is defeated and yet is enraged and for a time is waging war against followers of Jesus is using godless human authority and rule to oppose God's people that's what's going on where do we see that happening today well in many countries it's it's obvious as governments actively seek to limit and stop the spread of Christianity but even in our own country in our supposedly tolerant and free society with its historic Christian basis, there are vocal groups actively campaigning to oppose Christians and to silence any Christian voice. Uh, there's a growing campaign to have scripture classes removed from our schools. Uh, it's, been, it's been building for a number of years, but earlier this year, the Teachers' Federation resolved in New South Wales resolved to, to campaign for scripture classes to be scrapped. Now, for thousands of, of children and young people, this is the only opportunity that they have to, to hear the gospel of Jesus taught and explained clearly and, and openly. Significant, powerful forces are campaigning to silence that voice. Uh, I think another example of, in, is, uh, of this is in the recent treatment of Christian rugby star Israel Folau. And now his wife Maria also at the hands of Rugby Australia, at the GoFundMe website, ANZ Bank, much of the media and and other influential voices. And in case you've missed it, um, earlier this year, is he posted what was uh, some right, somewhat confronting yet biblical message on so- his social media saying that if you don't repent of your sin, then you're, going, and you're heading for hell. Uh, his message was motivated by love and concern. He said, Jesus Christ loves you. And is giving you time to turn away from your sin and yet expressing such beliefs has been deemed by many as unacceptable behavior in our supposedly tolerant and inclusive society and so his employer Rugby Australia sacked him he decided to challenge it in the courts and set up a GoFundMe campaign to raise funds that was then shut down and I'll turn it our funding campaign was set up and more than $2 million was raised in two days from over 20,000 people. This has got the attention of a lot of people. It was good to hear our own um, Archbishop, Glenn Davies, issue a public statement. He said, Israel Folau's right to express his faith and act according to his conscience is of fundamental importance in any democracy and it is of great concern to many Australians that this right is being denied and vilified. Many are wondering whether they will be next. No one should suppose that there, that there are not deeply held views on either side of this issue, but at the moment only one side is being heard. The way in which Falau's motives have been impugned and his avenues of support have been cut off smacks of a new and ugly Australia where dissent from narrow culture of views is not tolerated." The original post on Instagram canvassed some basic tenets of the Christian faith. It was not the entire Christian message, but it was posted without malice and from a place of deep conscience and concern. It encompassed all people, for we are all liars. It was posted with respect and with urgency. It had nothing to do with rugby, and it should have been his right as a citizen to speak of what he believes without threat to his employment." Christians do not ask that everyone agree with us on the reality of heaven and hell, but it is part of our faith DNA that we speak out about the salvation that is only found in Jesus, whatever the cost. I support the right for him to articulate his faith in the public sphere of social media. I admire the resolute way he has given his personal testimony. Why in the diversity of views in modern Australia is that faith to be silenced? the faith from which springs so much the values and virtues of our own civilisation, let alone the charitable works of many Christian churches across our land. Ultimately, this will not be decided in the media. The clear support of ordinary Australians has been ignored, marginalised and silenced. Many commentators and many politicians have failed to understand the precious nature of conscience and belief and its power in the lives of ordinary Australians, Loud, intolerant voices swamp the quiet faith of many. But I pray that what Israel Falau is going through may shine a light on an issue which is vital to our democracy and of crucial importance for Christians. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, and freedom to live according to our faith. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out. Will this be a catalyst for better protections of religious freedoms in Australia? I hope so. They're currently rather weak. But you know, whatever the outcome of Izzy's court case, I think it's clear that what we're seeing is increased opposition to Christ and his followers amongst our society, our culture, our media and politicians. And you know what? Revelation 13 tells us to expect that. But notice also... It doesn't tell us to put all our confidence in fighting a legal battle to overcome all opposition and to bring about perfect justice and perfect peace for God's people. That's not what Revelation 13 calls for. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place for standing up for justice. There certainly is. And, in fact, that's, to do that is part of our responsibility as as citizens in a democratic nation to, as we're able, we should work for the good of others. We should work to see justice done. But we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that we're going to overcome all opposition to Christ and his followers. Until Christ returns and brings that final judgment, Satan is still at work in this world. And his agents of godless human rule and false religion will continue to wreak havoc. And we should expect that. What will we do? What will we do when the opposition actually impacts us? What will you do when you're faced with the opposition of family, of neighbours, of schoolmates, of work colleagues, of a legal system that opposes you? What will you do? Will you be lured to worship our world? to follow the beast, to be deceived by the the flashy signs or silenced by the threat of not fitting in. What should we do? Well, Revelation 13 says we should draw on the wisdom and insight that God's word gives us that says we should expect this, we should accept it, we can understand why it's happening and we should patiently endure and remain faithful. Because we know that Christ has triumphed over Satan, that Satan's time is short, and that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We may suffer, we may be ridiculed, we may be labelled, we may not fit in. We may be disadvantaged, we may be prosecuted, we may even be imprisoned or put to death. But if we know Jesus and we're following him, then we have triumphed over the evil one triumphed by the blood of the lamb he is the lord the true lord the true god and he gives wisdom and he gives insight he enables us to patiently endure and he will save us and bless us in the end let's pray our lord god and gracious loving heavenly father we thank you for giving us your word, for, for teaching us, for helping us to understand what is and what will soon take place. Thank you for giving us wisdom and insight. Father, we ask that as we face this world and culture that, that so often turns away from you, we ask that you keep us from being deceived, keep us from worshipping and marveling at, at the godless beasts of our world. And in the face of opposition, and even persecution, please enable us to patiently endure and to be faithful to you. Father, forgive us for times when we've failed. Forgive us by your mercy and restore us. And Father, help us to see and to know that Satan's time is short, that he is ultimately defeated, and that in Christ we have victory. Give us wisdom, insight, patience, endurance, and faithfulness. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.